Burke Andrew O'Brien. Detective Kenny Sylvia stood in a small room at the 7th Precinct with faded blue walls and a lone table. He was taking photographs of what Burke O'Brien had on him the moment he was murdered. A pair of jeans, his college ID, a pair of New Balance sneakers, tattered and worn. Especially with a homicide, you can't help but personalize this thing. Through the investigation, I find out who he is, I find out about his family, I speak to them, um, and he becomes known to me, he becomes known to me as a person. I've never known him in life. The first time me and him ever met, he's dead. From ABC News, I'm Christina Kiley. This is a murder on Orchard Street. Burke was very vibrant, really devoted to his family. Burke's sister Rory was just 23 years old when Burke died. She and her brother were best friends. And uh, he, was, he was kind of an eclectic soul, you know. He liked to do a lot of things. He was from the city but loved the woods. He was the short, stocky, red-headed guy with a lot of personality and a lot of wit. Of all people, this person who was such a, an icon for strength and all that it means to just be like alive and bright and charismatic is the one that is laying there on the sidewalk. This was the second morning after Burke O'Brien was killed. His friend Forrest Bloaty was sitting in jail. He was the main suspect for the murder. But Detective Kenny Sylvia and a few of the other cops still had some doubts about whether he had done it. And I wish I had something else, personally, for me, to feel good about locking this guy up. Kenny decided that ballistics was going to be the best place for him to focus his attention. If gun residue on Forrest's clothes or fingerprints on the bullet casing pointed to Forrest, that would put his mind at ease. With the autopsy results, as far as the path of the bullet and all of that, it's perfectly intact, and ballistics will be easy to get off of it. After Burke's autopsy, some of the details of his death became clearer to Kenny. Remember on the 911 call? Forrest and Rory couldn't find where Burke was shot. I can't, I am. I'm checking, I'm checking, but I can't tell if any gunshot would. I don't know where it is. The bullet travels from left to right on, a, on like a downward angle. It lodges uh, under the skin in the back, like around the, the right shoulder blade. It goes into the, the top of the left lung. Travels, goes through the pulmonary artery, travels some more, and then goes through the aorta. The bullet went straight through his heart. There was no blood. The bullet never exited Burke's body, so there was no exit wound for the blood to drain. And so all of this blood is just collecting in his chest and, you know, making it difficult to breathe. He's going to be dead pretty quickly. Without blood, it was almost impossible for Forrest and Rory to find the gunshot wound. And that's why Rory, who was kneeling on the sidewalk giving her brother chest compressions, could never have saved his life. But she couldn't stop replaying those moments in her mind over and over. I asked the doctor when he, when he told me that for sure that Burke was dead, I asked him 
you know, then? And he said, no, there's absolutely nothing he could have done. Because I could, you know, for that, for those, for that hour, I kept thinking if I, if I would have done, you know, if I would have, like, thrusted harder or something, you know, which, by the way, I should have been thrusting harder, but doesn't, not that that would have helped anything, but, you know. Back at the 7th Precinct, the detectives were huddled in the sergeant's office. Okay. By that point, everybody's out. out of the apartment. They call it the CO's office. That stands for commanding officer. The discrepancy. The 9-11 call states. He's saying he's not shot. They were a group of big guys hunched over a small desk, still poring over the details of the story, especially the moment when the current suspect, Forrest, put a coat over Burke's body. Misha, what is the purpose of putting the coat over him? Could you explain that to me? I feel bad. Yeah, because would you put a coat over him? I would never think putting a coat over him. I'd think, help. I'd be screaming. Coat over him. You put coat over dead people. people. You cover up. If you know the person, you cover up their face. Because you don't want to, you don't. The guilt thing. The guilt thing. You don't. Sergeant Dates. But two days into the investigation, the detectives were dealt a blow. Here's Andy Dietz. When we left last night, the DA, last thing he told me was we had enough to charge, and that's how we left it last night. But now there's some questions. Came in this morning. The DA, at this point, uh, might decline to prosecute, which just means he's going to put everything off. Here's Kenny Sylvia. Right now, the district attorney feels that there's certainly enough for an arrest, and an arrest was made, but there's just not enough evidence to continue with a, a prosecution of the case. The defendant will be free to go, but he could get arrested tomorrow, could get never arrested. Just it's just Biden us some more time, and that's what we're at now. But Kenny was starting to feel the weight of this case and a sense of responsibility to Burke's family. The only thing that really bothers me is that I spoke to the family members this morning, and they're like just thanking me up and down. Thank you so much. You guys have handled this great. You're all gentlemen. I, I, I can't tell you what this means to us, this and that. And all along, I'm, I'm saying to myself, you know, I don't want to get these guys' hopes up, but in reality, this guy's never going to get prosecuted for this, and it's going to leave us basically with square one with no arrest. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. Now the detectives had to regroup. They started going over their notes, comparing information gathered from every door they had knocked on, and began to brainstorm next steps. 70, apartment 3, I got no answer. Apartment 4, I did. Apartment 7 is vacant. 8 was done. 11, there was no answer. 12, there was no answer. I'm going to go warm the car up. The detectives went back to Orchard Street to see if they could find any new witnesses. I had been on a lot of the late-night canvases before, but going door-to-door in the middle of the day was a new experience. 
It was a shooting across the street. I was just trying to find out if anybody saw anything, heard anything. No, we were we went to, to bed early. We had a glass of wine on Saturday night. Orchard Street and the blocks around it were at the edge of New York's Chinatown. The identity of this part of the city was just starting to shift. The residents here were now a diverse group, young professionals like Forrest moving in next door to a lot of immigrant families. Speak English? No, 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 no. <laughs> I don't even know English, nothing. A little bit. It's a block that is filled with first-generation immigrants that are hardworking people. They go into the buildings at night, they shut the doors and shut their blinds, and everything is generally pretty quiet. How you doing, brother? Happy New Year. If you go back up to this one, it's an older Chinese man. Number 28, it's on the fifth, it's on the the top floor. A detective from the fifth precinct in Chinatown was brought in to translate. Hi, Senator Barney. The detectives methodically made their way up and down steep staircases from one dead end to the next, searching for new leads. I don't like these old rickety staircases. <laughs> Kenny and his team were desperate to find anyone who saw or heard anything that night. A lot of people don't realize, oh, well, I just heard three seconds of an argument, or I saw just a glimpse of that, so it's probably really not that important. That's why it's important for the police to go out and do everything they can to find those people and that one person that has just that small little snippet of information that they in their mind think is useless could really be the linchpin. I would get a rush every time someone opened their door. I was sure this would be the person who knew something. But then, after a while, it became really frustrating to watch. Most of the people on the block were home that night. How could nobody have heard anything? I could only imagine what the detectives were thinking. Here's one of them, Jimmy Piccione. I found a uh, resident of this building who comes home just prior to the, to the shooting. And he's in his apartment, which faces Orchard Street. And he senses something outside. Not a commotion, but he can sense that there's somebody outside. And he goes and he looks at his window, and he sees two males standing in front of the building. And he says, I don't, I don't think that they're fighting or arguing, uh, but they're out there. I know they're out there. And he goes, and then I, I get undressed and I lay in bed, and I guess about a minute later, uh, he hears a shot. But he doesn't, at that point, he doesn't get up and look out the window. He stays in bed. We weren't finding anybody that, that gave us any credibility that, that we could use as a witness. It seemed very quickly that this case was just coming to a screeching halt. Back in the tombs, that's what they call the jail downtown, Forrest was still sitting in a cell. Is he still in? Uh, he should be out by now. I haven't gotten a copy of the DP yet. But once he's DP'd, they, don't, they usually cut him loose right away. I was only allowed in there a few times. The gray and white walls had turned a sickly yellow from decades of smudges and dirt. It smelled like nobody had cleaned it in 40 years except to throw bleach on a spot where someone puked. It was clearly a world Forrest wasn't used to. They call 15 people up at like three-hour intervals. Never in the day am I called up. 
If they didn't call my name, I have to spend another night there. But the very last one called my name and that's thinking, okay. And at least there's going to be somebody here. There's going to be a lawyer, or you know, possibly my my dad or or, or somebody. And I just walked straight through the courtroom and out the back door. And now I'm alone. Even though he was out of jail, for many of the detectives, Forrest's story still didn't quite fit. He had told them that Burke took off his jacket and took a step toward the shooter. But why would anyone do that? Here's Kenny. I try to get to know the homicide victim. Are they confrontational? Are they meek? You know, are they very diplomatic? Can they talk their way out of a lot of different things? So when you're investigating the last moments of their life, all of that begins to make sense when you deconstruct a homicide scene. Based on the actions that Forrest explains, it's very typical of what Burke, I've come to know him as. He's telling them, give my friend his money back. He's not even asking. Between you, you only have about $12, and they already, they already took it. Why are you going to confront him? It's not a whole lot of money. From Forrest's account, it seemed that he was confused by Burke's actions, too. I don't know what his purpose was. Whether Burke was challenging them or not, I don't know. Um, I don't know if he was trying to calm the situation down. But the gunman definitely took it as a, as a challenge. Most people wouldn't do that. We didn't know who Burke was at that time. We didn't know his personality. So when Forrest was telling us that, that didn't make sense. But by all accounts, by speaking to his family, speaking to his friends, Burke was the type of guy that's going to stand up for somebody. And he wasn't the type of guy that, that um, would easily get bullied. Here's Burke's youngest sister, Carly. Burke was, I think, always our, our biggest protector in our family, I'll say that. He was always a really huge presence in the world. And Rory. I wouldn't be surprised if they were intimidated by him. I can, I can only imagine, because they don't know where he's coming from. You know, they don't know who he is. And so they were probably threatened by him. They got scared, they shot him, and they ran. After Forrest was released, the case was on thin ice. A lot of the detectives still believed that Forrest could be guilty. They wanted to know why he could recognize the make and model of the gun, but couldn't offer any details about the shooter. Why didn't he mention a robbery on the 911 call, even when the dispatcher asked, did you see who shot him? And what about the idea of the love triangle? At the same time, if Forrest were innocent, the police had just spent the crucial first 48 hours on the wrong lead. And then... 7th Squad Detective Sylvia can help you. Suddenly, from nowhere, a phone call comes in. Now, how, how close were you? Right. Right, now, so when you ran, you ran northbound? A new witness okay. was about to come forward who would corroborate Forrest's account and help prove his innocence, changing the entire course of the investigation. Are you home right now? Next time, on A Murder on Orchard Street. All right, is there any way I can come to your job and speak to you? Thank you for listening to A Murder on Orchard Street. If you're interested in this story, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and leave us a quick review to help others discover it too. You could submit tips about this case to the NYPD by calling 1-800-577-TIPS. 
Again, that's 1-800-577-8477. A Murder on Orchard Street is a seven-part series produced by the teams at ABC News Nightline, ABC Radio, and ABC News Digital. Our website is abcnews.com slash orchardstreet. New episodes post Tuesday mornings on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and the ABC News app. You'll find our other podcasts there, too. And I wanted to remind you to check out a new podcast by our friends at 2020. It's called A Killing on the Cape, and it's about the murder of Krista Worthington, a fashion writer living on Cape Cod. I'm Christina Kiley. 